uh, get the get the Bible and, and open up to that. You notice, by the way, the the chandeliers are gone. Um, it's uh, it's not as bright as I wanted it, but I've been told it's bright enough. Um, I wanted this to be like the surface of the sun. I like bright rooms. Um, but uh, um, up here is much brighter, so it's quite nice for those of us. Wait until you guys get up here and, and look at your music and can actually see the words. It's going to be phenomenal. Um, it's like, I don't play by ear, but I guess I'm going to now. Uh, sometimes it was pretty rough to see your sheet music up here. Um, but we're going to be in John chapter 10, um, and we're going to be talking today about the day that Jesus went to Hanukkah. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we're going to get into the scriptures. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for our time together in music. We thank you for hearing the work of the gospel in Namibia um, as you've been using Mike um, to minister there at Nets and and through the missions outreach and and all the the various aspects we get to observe by email and and notes, but then to to hear him here and know that your spirit is at work on the other side of the world um, in a place very different from ours and yet um, the same spirit, the same truth, the same God, the same Christ. Um, Lord, we ask that as we turn our focus to your word, that we might be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. May your spirit guide us into truth. May we know him, you, him and know uh, the son and know you better. And we pray all of this, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. So John chapter 10 and verse 22 um, we've been talking, John chapter 7, just to review, uh, beginning in John chapter 7, uh, 7 through the first half of chapter chapter 10, is Jesus at the Feast of Booths, um, what's called in Hebrew Sukkot. Um, it's, a, it's a festival in the fall. Um, it's the last of the three great um, pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish calendar. Um, and Jesus uh, is, was challenged by uh, the, the Jewish leaders various different ways. Um, they challenge his teaching. Then he, they challenge him with a woman taken in adultery. They ask him to judge her. Uh, and then he heals a blind man and they challenge that healing. There's this whole series of, of challenges. And then in verse 21, uh, we basically have this statement. They just leave it with um, this idea that, that they, Jews have accused Jesus of having a demon. Um, and then uh, Jesus leaves. And then in chapter, chapter 10 and verse 22, we read this. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place. It was uh, at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Feast of Dedication uh, is the Greek term uh, for what today we call Hanukkah. Um, the, the celebration that in the United States has been made into essentially Jewish Christmas. Um, but in the, in the world before that, it had a very different, um, very different structure. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what it was. But the, the word, just so you know, the word for winter in Greek means bad weather. It's the season of bad weather. Um, in, in not unlike New England where we talk about we have two seasons, we have winter and we have bad sledding. Um, they have they have good weather and bad weather. You have growing weather and you have bad weather. This is the time period when it rains a lot in Jerusalem, um, and uh, and we've talked about this uh, in the past. Jerusalem gets a lot of rain. It gets almost as much rain as London, England, but it gets it all in about three months. 
Um, so it's not spread out over the year. Um, that's the reason they have reservoirs and giant pools all over the place to, to hold the water. So Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So it's probably raining when this happens. All right? He's seeking shelter. He's under this colonnade. And the Jews gather around him and said to him, How long... And the, the Greek phrase is actually, how long will you keep our souls in the air? All right, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? How long are you going to leave this hanging? Um, now, if you've read chapter 7 through the first part of chapter 10, Jesus is not vague in any way, shape, or form about what he's doing and who he is. He's been very, very clear about why he's doing what he's doing, why he's preaching what he's preaching. He has, he has made a bold declaration about his divinity. He has been very clear, and yet the Jews come into him and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long are you going to leave us hanging? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers yet another uh, moment where I think Jesus kind of touches his head. I told you, and you will not believe. You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, and you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now there's significance to that phrase. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And I'm I'm emphasizing specific words. I'm going to come back to them, why Jesus is saying this at the moment that he's saying it. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. In verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone him again. All right, They pick up stones again to stone him. Um, now, why, why does Jesus say what he says? Why does John frame it the way he frames it? And why is this particular episode uh, reported the way it is? Well, here's the deal. Um, today, what is, what is the, let's see how well you guys know Hanukkah. What's the story behind Hanukkah? Why is it eight days long? Because of the lamps, right? That, that's the story, right? The story is, uh, so what happened was, what happened was in about uh, BC 150, about 150 years um, before Jesus, um, there, there was a, a Greek ruler Um, one of the Seleucid kings, um, who got mad at the Jews, keeping it really simple, and he desecrated the temple. He sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies. It caused, and then he was taxing, uh, taxing the people, and this group called the Maccabees, or the Hasmoneans, they rise up, and they lead a revolt. They overthrow the Greek rulers, and they establish a pretty much independent kingdom. Um, and they take over, they take Jerusalem, they take the temple, but in the temple... Um, the, uh, the story that is told most commonly now is that they could only find one vial of oil for the menorah, the candle, and that vial should have only lasted for one day, but they light the candle and the candle lasts for eight days. Now, uh, I hate to ruin it for you. Didn't happen. Uh, that story, that story, that particular story comes from about 350, 400 years later. It was, it was, they started telling a story. Um, the, the story that was in circulation at the time of Jesus was that uh, they had gotten to Jerusalem, they took the temple, and what had happened was when the, when the, um, the Greeks had come to take over the city, uh, they, they came to conquer, the priests, the faithful priests, uh, had taken the fire of the altar 
and they had taken it and they had put it in a well. Um, now, obviously, what this means is that somehow they were tending it somewhere or another. Um, they had put it in a well, and they were taking care of it until the time that they were freed. And then, and this is recorded, by the way, in the book of Second Maccabees, um, which is not a Bible book. You're not going to find it in your Bible. It's a history book. Um, but but uh, they, they kept it in this well, and once they had thrown the Greeks out, they went to the well, but the fire had gone out. And they were super worried about the fire had gone out, um, and they bring the fire into the temple, um, and they do something. There's not exactly clear what it is. The Greek word they use is naphtha, um, which is, is some kind of substance, um, but some kind of resin or something. But when they put this, the, whatever they did, whatever was in there, they put it on the altar, and it suddenly burst into flames. And now probably what it was was there were coals, um, they weren't completely extinguished. You, you, any of you who've dealt with a campfire, you know, just because it ain't it ain't burning doesn't mean it isn't alive. Um, and uh, but anyway, what happened was they put it, and they, they saw that as a miraculous continuation of the of the fire of the first temple. All, right, all the way back to First Kings, when when Solomon dedicates the temple and and the fires are lit, all the way back to like like 950, 960 BC, that that this was God blessing their reconsecration of the temple. Now later on, they developed this oil story, and and I read all kinds of articles about where that came from. It's actually it doesn't appear until it appears in you guys really care about this, I'm sure, um, but it appears in the Babylonian Talmud. Um, in, a, in a book called Shabbat um, uh, 21b, if you want to look it up. Uh, but, uh, but it tells that story of that, that oil, and it's probably borrowed from the story of Elijah and Elisha, but I'm, that nobody's really clear where that came from. But it's later. That story was not being told at the time of Jesus. The story that was being told at the time of Jesus was this story of God's continuity, right? So he, from, from David to Solomon and the first temple, and then through the exile, the, the, the fire had been kept safe, and then it had been restored under Nehemiah, and now it had been restored under the Maccabeans. And this was a big deal because Herod the Great, who had built this temple, claimed to be the last of the Maccabean kings. So, so he wanted everybody to know, so although we don't know, we have no idea, if I were willing to put money on this, which I would never do because I'm a pastor, um, but if I were going to put money on this, I would say that Herod had made Hanukkah a big deal because he wanted everybody to know he was the continuation of David to Solomon to, to Nehemiah to, to Ezra and then to the Maccabeans and then to him. And the, and the, the Jews were celebrating this feast um, this feast of dedication to show the continuity of their faith through all the trials that they had faced. Now, what's really, really interesting is that we know the passages of Scripture that were read in the various Jewish communities during Hanukkah. And one of the big emphases in those readings was that although Israel was scattered like sheep on the hills of the world, they would be gathered together. It's a very common image in prophecy. So now you know why Jesus says, if you were my sheep, you would have heard my voice. He's saying, if this dedication of the temple that you're celebrating was really about God, you would hear the voice of the one sent by God. And you're looking for a symbol. You're looking for me to, to come out and say, I am the Christ. He says, if you can't tell whether I'm the Christ or not, me telling you would not help. 
at all. And so he is, Jesus is in the midst of this feast that is about restoration of continuity. Going all the way back to, to Genesis. Abraham making sacrifices and God sending fire to light it. And, and then Solomon. This continuity of, of, of sacrifice and worship. And they're saying, look, God always restores us. God always brings us salvation. God always regathers the sheep. And Jesus goes, and yet you're still missing the point. This is supposed to be a celebration of divine intervention. To preserve the covenant of God. Remember, we talked about last week, we talked about I am the good shepherd. And Jesus defines the sheepfold. He says, this is the covenants of God and I'm bringing new people into the covenants. I'm the shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the salvation. I'm the protector. I'm the God of Psalm 23. I'm everything that you need and what the world needs. And he's calling them in. And these people at a festival that's supposed to be about God's divine intervention. We know from a first century uh, historian, Flavius Josephus, that that was no longer the point of the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication had instead become about demonstrating your personal piety, your personal goodness, about coming and making a show of being there when you didn't need to be there. See, this is not a Bible feast. It's not a feast that's commanded in Scripture. This was a, a, a feast that came about after the Hebrew Scriptures had been uh, closed, the canon of the Scriptures had been closed, and this was supposed to be just kind of a rededication, and instead it had become about, look, I'm in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Dedication. That's how holy I am. Be impressed by me. And Jesus comes in and, and Josephus describes that. And look at how self-focused the Jews are as they're talking to Jesus. Are you going to tell us if you're the Christ? Because our lives are hanging in the balance here. Our souls are up, right? Um, they're so concerned and then Jesus says to them, he makes this statement, again, my sheep hear my voice, they will never perish. There's all this stuff, this is all tied into the shepherd thing. But then he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And suddenly they take up stones to stone him again. Why? Because the great decree of the Jewish faith, Shema Yisrael, Elohino Echad, all right? Yahweh Elohino Echad. The, the, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. And Jesus says, My Father, I and the Father are one. And they go, Oh no, you did not. And they pick up stones. And Doc is right, they are not allowed to stone people. So they're risking, um, they seem to be threatening him. And Jesus answers them in verse 32. He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? What a great answer. So tell me again what healing I'm being stoned for. Tell me again what thing I said was wrong. What thing I did was wrong. And they go, no, that's not it. They said, it's not for the good works you're doing. We're fine with your good works. It's because you committed blasphemy 
because you're making yourself a God. Now, this is one of Jesus' greatest moments of turning Jewish rabbinical argument on its head. Because one of the things that the Jewish rabbis are known for is finding obscure passages of Scripture to justify ludicrous ideas. And lest you think that I'm making this up, all you have to do is read through the Mishnah to find out all kinds of their arguments about what makes something clean or unclean. When can you marry a girl? When can you not marry a girl? When, when can you beat somebody up for being too tall for you? Um, why, what, what makes a, a, a jacket or a piece of clothing with two pieces of material? Right? They have all these arguments about, well, you know, you can sew two pieces, two different kinds of material together and it doesn't violate the law. But if you weave threads of two different materials together, then you have to be stoned. I mean, th- there's like all this, these, these detailed arguments that are making. And look what Jesus says. So what's their question? They said, you made yourself God. And Jesus says, is it not written in your law? I say you are gods. This is a line from Psalm 82. All right, Psalm 82, verse 6. Um, what's interesting is the word El in Hebrew, uh, it actually means great one. And so it is sometimes used to describe gods, and sometimes it's used to describe warriors, and sometimes it's used to just describe impressive people. All right, they're just impressive people. And in Psalm 82, it's actually being used to kind of describe the greatness of mankind. It's not saying that they are becoming gods. But Jesus takes the verse and he turns their way of approaching scripture on its head and says, well, the Bible says that we're gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot broken, be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent of the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Now, here's the funny thing about this. The logic of his argument is completely sound. Do not think for a second that Jesus is not aware of the absurdity of what he just said. He is taking a piece of scripture out of context to prove the failure of their interpretation of scripture. Because remember, what's Hanukkah about? It's about demonstrating your personal piety. I'm so good. I'm so holy. That's what they're doing right now. It's supposed to be about God. They're making it about themselves. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They get mad at Jesus, and Jesus goes, yeah, but there's a scriptural foundation, and if it's all about me, then can I use this verse to justify my behavior? Don't you hate it when somebody uses your own arguments on you? When your kids get old enough to figure out how to turn it back on you? My daughter has the most cutting wit that I, of any human being I have ever met. I don't know where she got it from. But she and I, my wife, will just sit and watch us go at each other. And we're, we're doing it in good, you know, good humor and stuff like that. And she is so fast. She will come back at things. And I will just, you know, we go into these, these like, oh, yeah, well, an OLU and use it. And eventually I just break down laughing because whatever she said was just so awesome. Right. And but you sit there and you're like, wow, I gave her weapons and now she's using them to cut me. Um, But that's what Jesus is doing. He's flipping the story back on them. He's saying, by your own logic, I've proven that I and the father are one by the works that I've done that are coming from the father. So why are you having a problem with this? Man, they they do not like him, but they downgrade their response. This is great. So remember, they took up stones to stone him. They're ready to stone him 
by verse 39, they're just trying to arrest him. They're like, okay, well, we can't stone you now. <sighs> so let's just arrest him. Let's just put him under control. Let's, let's, let's try to get him uh, into, a, into a, a trial or something. Verse 40, so he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. It goes all the way back to John chapter 1. Um, those of you that have been here through this whole thing, you know that John, the way he writes his gospel, he cycles thoughts, ideas, locations. You could actually write a whole dissertation on the topography, the geography of John's gospel, how Jesus comes back to places. He does something somewhere and then he goes off and then he comes back to that place and it fulfills. It's a really intricately designed gospel in that particular respect. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. Now, we might blow that out of, uh, we might blow right past that line. What did Jesus say about his sheep? I'm the great good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow the jews are waiting for jesus the shepherd to come find them come and tell us you're the good shepherd and then we'll follow you meet us on our turf and jesus says the shepherd does not meet the sheep on the sheep's turf the shepherd calls the sheep and the sheep come now we could look at the parable of the 99 and the, the one. You know, there's the parable where a shepherd has 99 sheep in the fold and he goes and finds the one. We tend to overemphasize that one and go, see, Jesus is so desperate for me that he goes out to find me. That is not Jesus' point, by the way. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. I call. You hear. You listen. They came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now, again, look at the juxtaposition, the geography. Jesus in the temple where God is supposed to be, where people are supposed to meet God. And what is the response of the people who meet Jesus in the temple? Rejection, stoning, attempts to arrest him, trying to trap him, trying to argue with him all the time. Jesus goes across the Jordan River into the wilderness of Moab and Edom where God, God's supposed to be in Jerusalem. He's supposed to be meeting the religious. Jesus goes out into the wilderness of the Transjordan and God and people go there to meet him and believe. So much of the trappings of what it took in order to convince God to hang out with you in Jerusalem was wrong. They had taken something that God had created as a, as a, as a symbol, as a meeting place, as a, as, a, as a path, whether it was the altars or the priesthood or the building or the courtyards or the songs. The Jews had taken all of that and they had made it about themselves. And the only way that Jesus could actually get people to meet God was to get outside of that and meet with those who were willing to hear his voice.
And I couldn't help but think about this as, as Mike was sharing about the, the greatest mission field in Namibia is in the pews of that nation. Uh, you know, New England, New England is the most unchurched region of the United States, right? Now, you go south, you go to Texas, right, John? There is a Baptist church on every corner, sometimes three on the same street. There was a place out west, and I cannot remember where it was, where I saw First Baptist, Second Baptist, and Third Baptist church next door to each other. Like literally people just left the right-hand door and made a church and left the right-hand door and made a church. All right? It was just, it was crazy. All right? In New England, we're like First Baptist Church. We're on ground zero Baptist Church. We haven't even gotten to the first yet. But the reality is, you go to a church region, there are still a lot of people in a lot of churches who don't really know Jesus. The trappings of religion are not faith. Faith is being willing to go where Jesus is to hear his voice. As we, as we get into this and as we wrap up, I just want to leave you with kind of this, this notion about what Jesus is trying to do through chapters 7 through 10. Jesus is trying to shake us out of a comfort zone. Out of knowing all of the answers. To say that sometimes faith is not about all of the answers. Uh, In fact, I would say that Jesus is challenging these very religious people who in many ways they have legitimate questions to say to them, which is more important? You having the answers or you seeing what God is doing. Now don't get me wrong. Doctrine is important. Theology is important. If all you're focused on is, is, oh, that was exciting, that was cool, that was amazing, you're going to be blown by every wind of doctrine and emotion. There needs to be a balance. But sometimes we are so locked into having all the answers. We want Christianity, we want the image of the faith in Jesus Christ to resolve into 4K resolution or whatever the new one is. I don't even, I don't even, I still have, I barely have an HD TV because I never buy TVs. I just take them from people that get rid of them for better ones. Um, the, the, uh, but we're waiting for the image to resolve in full 4K with all the right, you know, we're waiting for it to resolve before we commit. You know, just so you know, that's not how life works. You don't answer all the questions about the woman that you want to marry before you marry her. You'll never marry her. And the answers change anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right? Right? You, you, don't, you don't sit there and wait, well, I've got to make sure I've got everything exactly perfect before we have a kid. You will never get to that point. Life is sometimes about having faith that things will resolve when I take the step. I grew up in church. I'm going to leave you with this illustration that it's going to really date me, but if you have not heard this, seen this movie, y'all need to go out and watch it. Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. One of the most amazing movies ever, and it's got Sean Connery in it, which elevates it to a 13. I love Sean Connery. 
There's a moment in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where my dad and I, we were at my, my dad's friend John Rossi's house. He had a laser disc player and a giant projection TV. In the 80s, that was as good as you could get if you were a Baptist pastor's kid because you were not allowed to go to the movie theater. So we waited until Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out on laser disc. Who even remembers what those were? Um, and they were about, anyway, uh, came out on laser disc and we sat down to watch this movie. And there is a moment in this film that my dad came up out of his seat and yelled, if you've ever met my dad, that'll preach. You probably all know the moment. It's when Indiana Jones is standing. He's standing at the edge. He's on a cliff. There's just an open space between him. And, and it, the, the phrase is, is something like you have to walk on the steps of the air. So I can't remember what it is. And he stands at the edge. His dad is dying. Sean Connery's in the back going, Junior. Right? And, and he, he, take, he goes like this. And he steps out, and it turns out that it's just disguise. There's a pathway from one edge of the cliff to the other. My dad jumps up. He says, that's a leap of faith. That's a leap of faith. And then preached it for like six years. Like every sermon got that illustration into it. He loved it, which was funny because he was anti-movie, like movie theater, and yet he was telling people a movie illustration, but let's not get into that. Um, But the idea, that idea has always sat with me because every time I have to make a choice about whether I want things to completely resolve to my satisfaction or I just want to take a step and believe that God is going to do it, that image pops into my head. That idea of of Indy taking that step and stepping out and finding that God was there, the foundation was there all the time. These Jewish leaders had everything going for them. They had the temple. They had the altar. They had the priesthood. They had the feast. They had everything working for them. But they were not willing to take the leap that was required for faith. If your faith is grounded solely on your ability to comprehend God and what God is doing, it's not faith. It's opinion. Faith, by definition, exceeds my ability to comprehend it. And it is only in hindsight that I look back and I went, wow, God brought me here. That's faith. And friends, if you're teetering on the edge of whether you're ready to follow Jesus or not, and you're waiting for everything to resolve, I'm just going to let you know, it's never going to happen to your satisfaction. We just have to take a step. I I do not in any way, shape, or form regret any step I have taken in faith. I regret a lot of the, the steps I took based on my own knowledge and wisdom. Mostly at used car dealerships. But I do not regret any step I took when Jesus called me to take it. Even as crazy as it was. And I invite you to take that step this morning. Maybe you're exploring the faith and you say, I'm not sure I want to be a Christian yet. I got a lot of questions. Well, we can help you with questions. I'm happy to answer questions. But ultimately, it's a step of faith. Maybe you're a Christian and you've receded into that temple Judaism. And you've gone, I've got all the answers. I've got all my things sorted out. I'm never going to get out of this. I'm just going to keep my faith in this nice wide block. That crazy young man went to Namibia. I don't know what he was thinking about. I'm safe ministering here. We've got to get out of that. God calls us to take a leap of faith. Is Bree here?
All right, Bree, you might want to cover your ears. I'm about to embarrass you. Uh, Bree posted on her Facebook about a challenge her dad gave her to step out of her box and spend some time with Helena. Not comfortable, right? Not easy. Not her thing. Bree is not a, I, I mean, I've known Bree now for 18 years. We've had 10 conversations. She's not a talker. I am. That's okay. We have a lot of email conversations. But man, I saw that and I just broke down. Because there was Greg to encouraging Bree to just take a step. And the rewards that she and Jordan and Ryan harvested from their relationship with Lena, they would have never seen God do that. They hadn't taken that step. All right, I'm done embarrassing you now. I'll embarrass somebody else next week. But that's what faith is. Taking a step, believing that God is going to do it, and then being able to look back and say, wow, he carried me that whole way. Don't be a Jew. Don't be trapped in the temple thinking you've got God figured out. Follow the God that pushes you to the edge, that takes a chance on the edge of all that is reasonable to see what is supernatural. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are called to live in faith. May we be faithful. May we take the steps. For those that are exploring this faith, as you call us and lead us, may we answer the questions that need to be answered and may we take the steps that we need to take. For the serving, for those of us serving in in both public places and and private situations and, and just taking little steps and taking big steps, but taking them in faith. Whether it takes us across the world or it just takes us across the street or it just takes us into the arms of our husband and our wife to live in faith in that covenant. Wherever it is that you're calling us to take a step of faith, help us to take it, to walk, to move without all the answers, without even all the emotions, but just to know you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace. We're going to have coffee and refreshments down.